There are also builders that are actually like larger trading firms themselves and that do a lot of the arbitrage internally. So they're called the integrated searcher builders or HFT builders in some circles. And so, you know, when there's a lot of volatility, let's say on Binance or centralized exchanges, they have more market share because they have all of that flow internally. And so depending on the market condition, naturally that also affects what kind of blocks different builders build. So you can get like a lot more specialized and see, you know, what builder would suit your needs uh, more specifically. GM, GM, everyone. My name is Tagachi, the host of Scraping Bits. And today I'm with a special guest and very good friend, Kubi. How's it going? Hey, what's up, man? How are things? Not bad, not bad. Just grinding as always, trying to stay on hmm. top of things, pursue multiple things at the same time. Uh, I, I'm sure you you know the exact feeling. <laughs> Name of the game, man. <laughs> yeah. So just for people that don't really know you, um, let's give some context of who who are you and, and what do you do? So Kubi, co-founder of Gattaca. So Gattaca is a team that is... Uh, that built and is operating the Titan block build on Ethereum mainnet. Historically, Gattaca had mainly been a proprietary trading firm, initially doing sort of arbitrage, uh, liquidity provisioning, uh, HFT market making prop on centralized exchanges, but then moved more towards uh, the on-chain trading side of things and currently mainly focusing on infrastructure related things like block building. Yeah, and I, how did you get into all of this? Were you doing you know, algo trading outside of Web3 before, or was it kind of just you, you fell into it? Yeah, I mean, uh, so uh, I don't have a traditional finance background and never did any of that professionally uh, pre-crypto. So mm-hmm. my background is software engineering, cybersecurity. But uh, during my uni days, uh, one of my good friends uh, who I still work with uh, at Gattaca today got me into building bots right. for probabilistic skill games on the internet so this is not poker but other things that involve probabilities and dice and where you can get an edge basically like playing with a system Mm -hmm. and so um we initially build out like a somewhat of a significant bot network you know generating revenue playing all of these kinds of online games when we saturated the market or our strategies were at capacity so to speak we then actually also explored forex trading obviously less <laughs> less successful on that front um yeah. that was also the time when then my uh cybersecurity startup uh, took off and so we shifted focus but like we always had a bit of a knack for i guess writing bots and things like that so mm-hmm. when i got into crypto naturally uh when it was less competitive on the centralized exchanges arbitrage and market making was uh like a a natural step for us. And you had the cybersecurity business before, right? Correct. What did you do with that? Do you sell it or still go Yeah, exactly. No, so um, it was a mobile security business. And um, what we did essentially was uh, we built application level virtualization environments. um, Mm -hmm. So containers, so to speak, uh, that essentially allowed enterprises to uh, enforce certain security policies uh, for enterprise apps. So things like um, encryption of data addressed in transit, um, data leakage protection, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, so we did that. I think we launched or started working on it early 2013 and then later got acquired in late 2016, early 2017, which is also the time that I got into crypto. Quite interesting. As anybody that does startups, they want, you know, the startups to succeed and then Maybe they want to get an acquisition or just you know continue revenue stream, but for most that never happens. So, how do you get to that point where you're prepared for an acquisition and you kind of sell yourself to someone? How do you find the person to sell to first of all, and how do you get mm. in a position ready to sell? Yeah, well, I, I mean, to be honest, I think a lot of it is luck. Like on one hand, you wanna maximize your exposure to be in a place where luck can actually strike. So that normally is just a function of a lot of hard work and grinding and putting yourself out there, hustling, taking on risk, but then luck actually has to strike. So you're you're optimizing for uh, maximizing the chances of luck striking, but like there there are just so many unknown uh, things that impact your success or your possibility 
one yeah. exit. And so, yeah. Basically create your own lock. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Increase the exactly. chances as much as possible to the point where it's, if you keep going, you eventually hit, hopefully. Yeah. Exactly. But then you obviously use that experience to start up Gattaca and eventually mm-hmm. Titan. So what was kind of the process of bringing, t- bringing a team together and bringing us, you know, yeah, a team together that you can trust and eventually scaling that. Yeah. Initially, um, bringing the team together is basically people that I already knew and trusted and had worked with before. Like I mentioned, like one of my good friends at uni who was writing bots with, uh, was also my co-founder for the, the mobile security business, who then I also managed to uh, convince to uh, work on Gattaca together with the other co-founder of the uh, mobile security business also joined Gattaca and co-founded it together. And then with sort of the core people in place, um, basically just meeting people along the way. And anytime I came across someone who's like super gifted and like smart and hardworking, um, try to see if you know there's synergies and opportunities to work together and bring them in. And even we did that. I actually joined you for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> exactly. We also worked together uh, together for a while, um, and mm-hmm. you know it was very opportunistic, very random. Uh, I, I don't know how. I think we met on a Discord server. So. Yeah, it was so weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just like yeah. browsing. <laughs> yeah, for real. It was just like browsing around and just DM'd and just ran a trial period, which yeah. was quite interesting. I like I never touched Rust. And that was kind of the way I got into Rust is for you guys. And even mm-hmm. to what I'm doing now, which is uh, yep. kind of crazy to look back at and how things have progressed. But yeah. I guess having said that, when you bring on someone like me, for example, someone you don't know from the wild, how do you know... How do you kind of like protect your IP and make sure they're a right fit before bringing them into the core of everything? Yeah, I I guess uh, our approach has always been, in general, I I tend to be more on the trusting side than not. I know other teams are different um, that are very protective of like any potential alpha leak or things like that. I tend to be more on the trusting side, but then also I'm not naive. And even when we started working together uh, initially you know it was more segregated you had access to some things but not obviously not everything yeah, yeah. and not core alpha and things like that so mm-hmm. um yeah it's, i guess it's about striking the balance really and also a bit about like what the culture of your team is uh, and mm-hmm. how you kind of work together because if you have a team that is all about you know like uh, keeping it like on a need to know basis only um, that obviously has upsides in terms of information leakage, but mm-hmm. a lot of downsides as well in terms of like information across the organization, collaboration, yeah. innovation, executing quickly and things like that. Right. So yeah, make compromises on all front. A lot of trade-offs. Yeah. And how long were you doing basically Gattaca for until, until now? Yeah. That was kind of like the process of scaling as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first, I think almost three years were, were just very organic. So mm-hmm. just the founders and some part-time, uh, people on the side to essentially build out a lot of the trading infrastructure and work on some of the strategies. We are a prop trading firm. So, you know, the, the money you make with through profits is basically what sustains you. And then we had a really good run doing um, sort of market neutral HFT, uh, just market making on centralized exchanges in 2019 and 2020. Mm-hmm. And we raised a small seed round actually after on the, on, on the back of that, essentially on the back of that success. Um, and that gave us a little bit more firing power to scale a bit quicker, which was also the time that we started dedicating some more resources to um, on-chain trading, um, mm-hmm. you know, pre-flashbots, pre-MEV, PGS, oh, yeah. and all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was really like a, some dark times back then. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah, official. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what was kind of the process of you know, building the initial infrastructure and getting that, that first kind of rollout out, what was your strategy to basically get the MVP out? Um, so since none of us had like a, you know, a finance background uh, professionally, 
a lot of it was learning by doing and just research. So whatever you can find on the internet, and there's a lot of stuff out there, yeah. obviously. Um, but you know, when it comes to trading systems, usually when it gets to juicy stuff, not so much. And then basically always striking the right balance between building something that you can get into production ASAP and iterating on that versus building the perfect system. Yeah. Especially if you're a smaller, you know, startup, um, you, you can't spend like a half a year just building and not having anything in production and, and actually making revenue, especially if you're not venture funded at that point, right? And so yeah. there's always a fine line because you, you don't want to keep re-architecting everything, building up a lot of technical debt and things like that. But yeah, yeah. at the same time, you need to move quickly. So uh, yeah, it's a trade-off again. Yeah, that's it's like a really core value that's always stuck with me when you first mentioned it when you're like mentoring me is you've got to build a system at its first iteration as fast as possible, make sure it does something of value. And then once it's able to do that one thing, you just expand on that. And I think it's very important to do that with complex systems. Like for example, I'm doing, you know, a fuzzing system now and that takes up a whole, you know, it's a, it's a giant system when you when you look at it and you don't want to build the most perfect thing because you want it to do something <laughs> otherwise you're never going to get to the the first stage and i think that's where a lot of startups fail is never getting to that initial yeah. mvp stage and yeah. then i think collapses. the other thing is also that when you are working in a new area and do a bit of greenfield work where it's not exactly clear what the production system will look like or how you're going to interact with the markets and how the markets will respond. Mm. You just can't know. So you, even if you had all the time in the world, you wouldn't be able to build a perfect system because you don't have all the information. So you want to get to the point where you can interface with the real world as quickly as possible and then use that mm -hmm. feedback loop to iterate the system. Yeah, so you, so you know what's actually out there and what's possible. And then yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then what kind of sparked the transition into block building? Yeah, so um, in terms of our on-chain trading activities slash MEV, um, we mainly focus on Alt L1 EVM compatible chains. Mm. So the reason being that we had a lot of um, high-frequency uh, infrastructure, uh, which we could really leverage on those because of the faster block times Mm -hmm. And just the nature of the trade is very different from mainnet. Yep. And so we build up a lot of infrastructure. So it's on those networks, is it is more of an infrastructure game than having like super sophisticated algorithms or finding like some alpha in some strategies, yep. although that obviously also exists. But we essentially, because those were the main building blocks that led us to be super competitive, Mm -hmm. and capture significant market share on these other chains, which were very latency sensitive and required this infrastructure, geo distribution, network optimizations, all of those things. Yeah. Um, we essentially had all the building blocks that are necessary for block building or block construction. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we also realized that um, the trades that we, are, that we were pursuing were always going to limit us to a certain team size, you know, being mm. like somewhat of a smaller trading prop trading firm. And also as the markets evolve and because we are mostly focusing on atomic type of trades, those opportunities wouldn't persist forever. Um, mm. So we were looking for opportunities in the market, essentially, where we could leverage everything that we've built up already, um, but actually had the chance or would be in a good position to be a category winner. And so when the block building opportunity opened up uh, post-merge and PBS, we were like, okay, all these years, the things we've been doing essentially were just train wheels to do this specific thing, which has opened mm -hmm. up now. And so uh, we didn't pull the trigger immediately uh, post-merge. Uh, took us a bit of a while and some strategizing to size the opportunity and how yeah. we want to position ourselves. But uh, when we did... Um, we did a resource shift and you know, mainly focusing on uh, block construction now. And when you design these this architecture or any kind of architecture, what's the process of going from nothing to something? Is it are you writing it down for like bumps on end, seeing what's out there, and then building, or is it kind of simultaneous? Like, okay, what do we need next? Let's build this. Okay, what's next? Build this. Yeah. So, given the complexity of the problem and 
it not being like uh, you know like a simple bot that one person can work on, but mm-hmm. it requiring like multiple team members to work on this in the first place. It naturally requires more of a architecturing and uh, design process than mm-hmm. like smaller endeavors. So that absolutely was the case. So first understanding the the basics of what kind of solutions we need, what kind of infrastructure, what kind of systems, mm-hmm. and then piecing them together and dividing them up in a way where we could leverage the manpower that we have to move forward as quickly as possible. So like modulizing as, as much as possible and assigning tasks? Something like that. In general, like my approach is never to sort of, okay, I spec out all the tasks and then distribute the task. It's usually more of a collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's not like I sit down in a dark room and architect everything and I'm like, <laughs> okay, guys, build this thing. But it's more like a, a team effort. Um, right, right. Although obviously one person generally has to have more of an overview than others. Like a leadership role of some sort. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And... I guess the same is true when developing bots. So let's say someone's just starting out as a solo, you know, builder with any, not even related to MEV, but just in like large, complex, you know, programs in general, and they want to build it by themselves. Maybe it's a startup and they haven't got the capital to raise, I mean, like a hire or they just don't know anyone. What would be your kind of strategy to build this, this complex system from the ground up by yourself initially? Yeah, I guess the decision-making process would be really thinking about what the MVP could look like, the most minimal version. Right. And if that version could be built like by oneself, if that is possible, absolutely get your head down, like try and get the first version out as quickly as possible, very scruffy and interact with the real world, um, like I mentioned before. Yeah, yeah. If that is not possible, make sure like you understand what is required, again, for the smallest version, and then have a compelling picture why anyone else would want to work on this uh, and then start selling, essentially. And what are the problems you really faced while building these kind of architectures as well? Usually, it's just the unknown unknowns, you know, and because none of this stuff is specked out anywhere. Even today, like, if you want to launch a builder, you can have, like, a relatively naive version launched somewhat quickly you know you just fork the public flashbots builder and then Mm -hmm. start iterating from there but even then like if you've never done a lot of this stuff it's still a bit of work to wrap your head around and then you know they're they're just things that pop up and as soon as you have multiple moving parts and you need to integrate them all together debugging is just a nightmare so most Mm -hmm. of your time will just be spent debugging so in general the more you can put in place to help you understand where things are going wrong, the better. But yeah, most of your time is essentially going to be spent debugging stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, what exactly is a builder? Like, why would someone choose to make a builder? <laughs> right. good, good question. We should probably have started with that. Yeah, probably um, should. <laughs> so essentially, block production itself used to be done by one entity initially on proof of work uh, ethereum which was the miner and the job was essentially um you know uh, according to consensus spec you know if you are the one who is let's say voted or whose turn it is to build a block whatever you know uh reason whether it's like breaking a hash or whatever it is calculating some value um mm-hmm. but it's your turn to build a block then you your task is to take transactions that are in the mempool, so the transactions that you have aggregated locally, um, and then you know naively order them, let's say time price priority, which uh, it, it is by default. Get these transactions ordered, so build a block, and then you know gossip it out to the network, and people will vote on it or test or whatever it is to yep. uh, accept uh, and have consensus around that is a, that it is a valid a valid block. Today, because mostly because of MEV, the job of building a block is no longer that simple. And so the task of aggregating all this, all these MEV bundles and private transactions and public transactions and then piecing them together in such a way that you actually have the most valuable block is very resource intensive. 
Mm-hmm. So this is naturally a very centralizing force on the network and puts a lot of pressure on the network because the validators that essentially control the most stake and are most sophisticated and merging bundles and transactions in order to produce block blocks um, will have this flywheel effect of you know the most sophisticated player being able to accumulate more profits being able to accumulate more stake and the end game basically looks like uh, one large entity let's say citadel or whatever yeah. um, controlling most of the network and extracting all the mbb uh, which is obviously a problem and so yeah. this new sort of concept was brought up uh, pbs which stands for proposal builder separation and it essentially uh, segregates the roles of constructing the blocks which is very, very resource intensive and mm. requires a lot of sophistication from actually proposing the block to the network. So by being able to keep the validators or proposers very lightweight and dumb and the builders more sophisticated, we essentially alleviate the centralization force on the network where you know your mom and pop that runs like a Raspberry Pi in yeah. know, the basement or whatever with 32E stake. Um, as likely to produce a block with the same amount of value uh, as like a Citadel, even though Citadel might own more validators than aggregate, but on a per validator basis, mm. um, they stand the same chances. And so um, the block builder's role is essentially to do the heavy lifting in terms of sequencing and like aggregating transactions and all of those things. And the proposers and validators can stay down. Mm-hmm. So what's the real reward or incentive for running it over like a validator, I guess. So the reward is basically if you're really good at building blocks, uh, especially if you're better than the competition, mm-hmm. the you are able to gain a share of the block rewards, which mm-hmm. is very much, uh, which which is directly correlated to how much better you are at building blocks. Okay, so right. you can you will be able to take a margin uh, on your blocks that you produce. Right. So if you build a block, let's say, you know, a whole bunch of MEB bots have created their bundles, um, you know, back running, front running, sandwiching, all that stuff. Your your job is basically to organize them in such a way where the most amount of value is being produced, right? Or EFO. Correct. Correct. And whoever does that most efficiently basically gets a bigger share. Um mm-hmm. And then what is the determining factor of having someone, you know, earn, let's say, 25% of the network versus someone that's earning like 0.1%? Yeah. So there are basically two main factors, one being order flow or bundle flow or whatever you want to call it, because uh, that is essentially the building blocks of a block. And so if you don't have enough order flow, you will not be able to compete. So that's one part. But then, exactly. But then the other part is um, if you have somewhat order flow that is on par with other competitive builders, then it's all about your technology. So, on one hand, that is your simulation engine because block building requires a lot of EVM simulations. So, how quickly can you simulate uh, transactions? And when you think about the block building problem, the constraint is basically you have 30. A million gas. You have all these transactions that are coming in. What yeah. is the sequence that will lead to the most valuable block given the constraint of 30 million gas of block space, right? Mm. And so the faster you can simulate, uh, if you're very naive, the more combinations or sequences you can explore that will allow you to get to a more optimal solution to the problem or arrive there quicker, right? So that's one part, fast simulations. The second part is having sophisticated bundle merging algorithms. So if you think about it in real life or in practice, you know, there are like hundreds, sometimes thousands, uh, tens of thousands of transactions coming in real time in bundles yep. as the slot progresses. So you have you, in, in, in practice, you can't actually try out all combinations, right? Even if you had the fastest yeah, simulation yeah. possible, right? So this is where your bundle merging algorithms come in. So your mm-hmm. bundle merging algorithms essentially allow you to use smart heuristics yep. to limit the search space. So you actually don't have to try all algorithm, uh, sorry, all combinations. Mm. And so what that looks like is that you are essentially doing optimizations when looking at the search space 
but you want to do it in a smart way such that you you discard the sequences that will most likely not to lead to anything more valuable mm. and whilst at the same time keeping in the sequences that will lead to an optimal solution. And mm. so then when you combine the fast simulation with smart bundle merging algorithms, your probability of finding like a you know, more optimal solution yep. is maximized. And then the third part is essentially just low latency throughput of your entire system. Because um, the faster you are aggregating transactions and getting these bundles to your builder engine, so to speak, the more transactions you have to choose from at the time of constructing yeah. the block. Mm -hmm. And then once obviously the block is built and that should be done relatively quickly and you have block candidates, you now need to route these blocks as quickly as possible to the relays, which are responsible for delivering the blocks to the validators, right? And so right. all of these things are very latency sensitive. And, you know, there is not a single factor which would make you win everything, but like it's a combination basically of the order flow and technology factors. It's a whole pipeline. If one exactly. fails, I guess the whole thing fails, basically. Um, Correct. Correct. It's kind of like, you know, a force on a human body, you can't really do anything, you can't get to some place without it here. It's like your limiting factor. And so basically what it is, is a block builder is, you know, creating the most valuable block for a validator. And then the validator is choosing the most valuable one, right? Correct. Okay, got you. So, okay. so actually it is the relay. So the oh. relay is sort of the middleman between the block builders and the validator. It's sort of this trusted third party right. that exists uh, for now. Uh, but it's most likely going to go away. But the relay essentially aggregates all the bits from all the builders, and the validators will just simply keep pinging the relay and say, hey, what is the most valuable bit at the moment? What's the most valuable bit? And then at some okay. point, they'll be like, okay, I choose this bit, and then they sign the bit, go give it back to the relay, and then the relay is responsible for broadcasting the block to the network. And you can't really set up a validator and a block builder and do this because the validator is being chosen at random, right? So you can do that, but then the number of times you actually get to build a block is mm -hmm. directly proportional to how much stake you have in comparison to the entire network. And mm -hmm. so, okay. yeah, that is a lot of validators and a lot of stake. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. I guess it's theoretically possible, but in practicality, yeah. you need exactly. a lot more. And at that point, like, you know, if you own half of the network anyway. It's um, not really worth. You know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Interesting. Yeah, it, it kind of sounds very familiar to like program analysis, but on a, a grander scale in like a different kind of way. Instead of reading, you know, the bytecode of a contract, you're just sorting transactions in a way that makes the most value instead of sorting functions in a way that allows you to do something. It's quite interesting. I think... Yeah, in general, I think the block building problem is very much related to like a lot of the trading problems that you solve as an MVP team. Or yeah, yeah. Seems highly um, correlated. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, your latency, your infrastructure, your data analytics, your algorithm development, your backtesting, like all of those things are mm -hmm. the same. The interesting thing about block building is that it opens the door to other things where like, you know, one revenue stream is what, as I mentioned before, getting a share of the block reward, which is very much correlated to how competitive you are. But right. then being a block builder puts you in this interesting position where you can actually unlock additional value by, for example, offering services to different entities that interface with you. Yeah. Uh, because essentially like a block builder is the gateway to getting on chain or it's the way you anyone accesses block space today. Yeah. So if you think about the power users, for example, like trading firms, you can offer like better execution services and things like that because everything is really crude today. Mm -hmm. um, also other power users like L2s, you know, that need to settle transactions in a timely manner on mm -hmm. the L1, you can provide services for those kind of players. Um, other things are that um, the block builder is essentially the only entity across the transaction supply chain that actually knows the state of the chain mm -hmm. at the point of execution. So for example, if you think about like uh, 
aggregator services, you know, their route, their swaps through different pools in order to optimize slippage and things like that. Mm-hmm. They can only make that routing decision based on the top of block state. But that mm-hmm. transaction will most likely never execute top of block, but you know, because that's the most competitive space in the block. But it will most likely execute like some transactions further down the line. And at that point, the state of the pools will most likely have changed, right? So um, a lot of that's why a lot of these like solving and like routing services still leave a lot of MEV opportunities on the table. And you know these transactions are background and all that kind of stuff. And the block builder having actual knowledge of the state, the the chain state at the time of execution can actually use mm-hmm. that to offer services for like better routing, better solving, and yep, yep. you know other kinds of things, uh, which opens up a lot of other possibilities. Yeah, and, and I guess what kind of incentivizes a user to send their transaction to a specific block builder um, over another one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it is mostly around one, uh, the block builder having enough market share to be interesting, and that mm-hmm. might be different for different uh, users or searchers. Some mm-hmm. searchers will send transactions to a builder if you know they have like 1% market share, others won't even send to any builder that doesn't have at least 10%. And so that depends. But as long as you have market share that's significant to the specific user, there's an incentive to send transactions there because that is essentially block space they won't have access to unless they send transactions to their builder. That's one of the biggest criteria. Um, The second criteria is uh, also trust. So being a block builder, especially if you're receiving bundles from, let's say, a sandwicher or someone yeah. uh, that sends bundles, or even if you are a CX, DEX, arbitrage trading firm, when you send bundles to a builder, like you potentially are leaking information uh, about your trading strategy, yeah. you potentially expose yourself uh, to having your MEV stolen. And so there is an element of trust um, that a builder has to build up. And on one hand, that can be by just being in the market long enough uh, and demonstrating that, okay, you know, I've received bundles from all these different players and I've never stolen any MEV. It can be in the form of other searches seeing like larger trading firms. You know, there are larger trading firms that are doxxed and, you know, everyone knows who, what yeah. their contract is. And you see, okay, if this trading firm is sending order flow to this builder, then it must be okay, right? Yeah. Um, and then uh, for some, it is actually, you know, speaking to us directly and having a relationship yeah um but yeah when you look at something like one percent of the market share that means one percent of the time you're not going to get included in the block because you're not sending it to that builder right correct it is not always the case because um that one percent market share is also very much dependent on the type of blocks you build because different builders have different strategies and have different sources of flow. And mm-hmm. so like there are times, for example, when there are a lot of vanilla blocks and those are, we call vanilla blocks essentially blocks where there's not a lot of MEV. There are certain builders that perform better during those times because they have optimized their transaction ordering and whatever mm-hmm. to those specific kinds of blocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are other builders that perform better you know, during other times when there's a lot of MEV. There are also builders that are actually like larger trading firms themselves and that do a lot of arbitrage internally. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they're called the integrated searcher builders or HFD builders in some circles. And so, you know, when there's a lot of volatility, let's say on Binance or centralized exchanges, they have more market share because they have all of that flow internally. And so depending on the market condition, naturally that also affects what kind of blocks different builders build. So you can get like a lot more specialized and see, you know, what builder would suit your needs uh, more specifically. Yeah, you're also doing like a remarkable job. You've only been out for a few months, right? And yeah. you've already gone like 11% of the whole network. Yes. So, so we launched <laughs> publicly around three, a little over three months ago. The thing is we spend a lot of time actually building like our infrastructure and our bundle merging and all of that stuff mm-hmm. um, initially. So then when we actually launched we were really pushing hard to get as much flow as possible. And usually when we do have flow that is on par with other builders, 
we tend to be really, really competitive. So that led us to gain significant market share over a short period of time. And mm-hmm. obviously, we're still growing. But yeah, um, that was basically our secret sauce. So investing mm-hmm. a lot into technology. What happens when someone doesn't even specify the builder? Like, let's say they're just a u- normal user on you know, MetaMask doing a swap transaction. And they just do that. What happens then with, with the builders? It's just like kind of up for grabs for all of them or... Yeah, so that really depends on um, what your RPC endpoint is. Okay. So if it's, let's say, Infura and it's the public RPC that basically just sends the transactions to the public mempool, then naturally every builder will have access to that. But there are more, so the transaction supply chain is changing quite a bit. And so now you, for example, have like these private mempools mm-hmm. like MEV Blocker or Blink or even Flashbots, MEV Share, Colibrio, where on one hand, that protects users from um, like being front run because you're no longer or sandwich because you're no longer in a public mempool. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, they also run these types of auctions that allow searches to essentially bid for the right to back run the transaction. Mm-hmm. And then if they, they you win the bid, you essentially send a portion of the MEV that you are able to capture back to the user. Um, mm-hmm. So these are also now getting a lot more traction. And so, um, you know, sources of transactions are not just, you know, the public mempool. They are private mempools. They are like order flow auction platforms and different kinds of entities that are now popping up along the transaction supply chain. Let's say you are, you know, a searcher and, you know, you want to have access to all the builders. Is it possible just to send a transaction to every single builder? What's kind of like the the trade-off from doing that? Yeah, so... um, that is possible. As far as I know, most builders today have a public permissionless endpoint. So you can mm-hmm. just send your bundles there. The trade-off is really like the risk versus reward. So you, the risk is always that the builder might potentially unbundle you or steal your MEV. The reward is block inclusion. So you kind of want to strike the right balance between, okay, do I know what this builder is doing? Are they maybe a competitor? So I don't want to leak my strategy to them mm-hmm. because they're going to censor me. Or they're gonna, you know, get some information about my strategy, or they're gonna unbundle me. Those kind of things. So, like, usually people do a bit of research and find out what the builder is all about, either by doing some back channeling or, like, you know, just there being some information publicly available, and then make a decision based on that. Like an, a massive MEV team just wants to partner up with one builder and try and like take the whole network. Is that even possible? Or because they, like, what if the builder just turns on them? And just steals their strategy, or you know, replaces a few of their transactions with their own. Or I guess how's that? Yeah, I mean, to to take. I guess that would depend on how you define take the whole network. Let's say fifty percent or something. I know Beaver Build was quite up there before, but it's kind of redistributing now. Yeah. So it, again, it very much depends on like the market conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, if you only send your flow to a single builder, that means any blocks that builder doesn't build. Um, you don't get into. So even, you know, I think mm. the largest builder usually on average ha- has between 20 to 30% market share. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the top builders. And so that means there's 70% of the market that you don't have access to. So that's usually a trade-off. And then the question is what the benefit is. So usually what we see most people do is send to the larger builders that are significant enough and where there's some information about them that they can trust them. But mm-hmm. We have hardly seen evidence of builders having exclusive flow from searches other than the builders being a searcher themselves and then generating flow in-house that they only keep to themselves and not send to other builders. I guess for anybody trying to get into this game of block building, where would you recommend to start? Um, Definitely read up first, like just on a high level. I think Flashbots has like some really good like introductory posts around uh, PBS and uh, builders and relays just to understand the transaction supply chain a little bit better. Then I would recommend just looking at the public um, Flashbots builder. Again, it's not super competitive, but it's essentially a geth fork with some builder logic and simple merging algorithms in there. And if you get it up and running, uh, you can then start iterating from there, essentially. Mm. It's basically, you know, going back to the that first, those core values of getting something out and then iterating. Yeah. And, and where do you see this builder space kind of going as well? Uh, if people are, you know, doing their own in-house, you know, trading, 
then that would obviously generate a lot more transaction flow and more opportunities. So yeah, I guess what, yes. where you see it coming from. Yeah, so I think that is so. In general, there'll there'll always be somewhat three categories of builders. So mm-hmm. first category would be like the vertically integrated um, searcher builders or trading teams, and the market share of those builders will most likely always be correlated to how strong their alpha is, specifically uh, alpha for short tail strategies, like, you know, CX, DEX, ARPs, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So as long as you can maintain alpha for the strategies, you will have significant market share as a builder. That's mm-hmm. one type of builder. The other type of builder are uh, neutral builders, like ourselves, that basically optimize for um, block inclusion and block value maximization without having any bias towards transaction, mm-hmm. transactions or flow. And our edge is really that all the entities that will not send flow to like vertically integrated builders because there's a conflict of interest will have, will have no problem sending to us. And so there will always be a part of the market that will be uh, covered by more neutral builders. Mm-hmm. And the edge those builders have is essentially that their market share is not susceptible to any alpha decay of strategies right. that you run in-house because you are more of an infrastructure provider versus yeah. um, like a trading firm. And then the third category is builders with very high trust assumptions. Today, the only one is Flashbots, given their history, yeah, um, yeah. you know, being first movers and open sourcing a lot of their code and building a lot of trust and reputation in the, in, in the ecosystem. But the Flashbots builder, or at least the plan is for that to be replaced by a decentralized builder. So again, that category of builder will have the highest trust assumptions, will be permissionless. But the compromise there really is that they won't be as competitive and performant. Right. And so... Um, there will always be users that will prefer like having these high trust assumptions and are okay sacrificing block inclusion and execution for having those high trust assumptions. But that is a set, but they will never be as competitive. So there will be as part of the market share that is available to those kind of builders as well. So then the, the last part in general is that, um, as I mentioned before, um, the builder market space is still really early and there's a lot of room for innovation given that builders have like close proximity to a lot of power users and are basically the gateway to access block space. And mm-hmm. so that's actually also what we are most excited about, like all the different value add things a builder can offer to the ecosystem. And yeah, looking forward to seeing a lot more innovation happening there. Like a large grand scale view instead of just looking for profit. Correct. Yeah. So there are still the interesting problems, you know, that we all like to solve on a technical level, Mm -hmm. Uh, but like builders are actually in a position to do much more than that. So quite Mm -hmm. excited about that. Yeah, interesting. And and the top builders really make a fair bit of money. In in the past week, our sync builder has made 35 ETH with, I think, 27% of the network, which is kind Mm of, that's just like reordering transactions it's basically i mean like mev but at a grander scale yeah i i, I so obviously the problem the problems that builders solve is like harder than mm. just just the trading strategies themselves like if you're yeah, yeah. like an MEV strategy um so it's definitely not the easiest game to get into also like rsync and um like other there are some other larger builders um like also have in-house training teams, so their profits might might be slightly skewed. Yeah. Um, yeah that being true. said, even even neutral builders, though, like some of the top neutral builders, like uh, Builder Sixty Nine, they do uh, have um, some reasonable amount of profits. And also keeping in mind that we currently don't have most of the activity on chain, right? We are still somewhat mm. in a bearish sentiment, uh, and so just like with other businesses in crypto, most of the money is made during like, you know, the crazy activity and the bull runs. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah uh, the yeah. opportunity could look obviously a lot larger uh, in those market conditions. Oh yeah. This is a bear market. That's like a, a massive amount for just a week. I don't know about the infrastructure cost and all that. If it <laughs> Not <Yeah>. insignificant. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And I guess 
you know, founding this, uh, you know, Gattaca and, and Tyson, how do you really manage everything as well? Um, I guess the approach is always somewhat like decentralized command. Like I personally, I'm, like I mentioned before, I'm an engineer. Uh, so mm-hmm. I used to be a lot more hands-on uh, during our early days. These days, not so much. And uh, But we try, like we keep things really flat in terms of hierarchies and operate like under the notion of decentralized command. So people have ownership and take responsibility, make decisions yep. so that you know, it's a lot more fun, a lot more fun way to work, I think, for everyone involved. It obviously also has consequences, you know, when you fuck up, uh, yeah. when you make mistakes. Uh, but um, that way you can also iterate and like execute quicker, which is, you know, what everyone likes to do. Or most people at least enjoy that kind of working environment. Um, so mm-hmm. I guess my day job is generally just to try and stay on top of, you know, what is happening in the ecosystem making sure that we are prioritizing the right things at any given point in time yeah. and position, positioning ourselves correctly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't do as much execution these days. Sad story for, for <laughs> <now>. <laughs> yeah, I do get to code a bit on the weekends sometimes and like <laughs> do like those only, yeah. things. But uh, yeah, I can't actually be involved too much. Otherwise, I just become a blocker for the team. Uh, which is Right, kind of, yeah. Uh, it's, it's more like delegating tasks yeah. once it gets to a, a bigger state but in the early days you would have been you know a lot yeah. of hands-on all over the core infrastructure all that exactly. kind of stuff yeah hmm. and, and i guess how do you determine what what is a priority um and what isn't good question <laughs> so in general you kind of uh want to have a vision where the company wants to go right. um you want to have everyone aligned with that vision and then in real time, you always reassess um, if that is the right direction and if we are doing the right things mm-hmm. uh, in order to get there as quickly as possible. So that is it basically on a high level. And, you know, then obviously it gets more nuanced when you go into the specifics. And how do you start getting people aligned with the values and treating it like their own company? Because obviously you can hire someone and they're just there, you know, with a salary or maybe even if it's equity but they're not really treating it like it's their own, if you get what I mean. For example, you know, you're a co-founder of something and you're treating it like your baby. You obviously don't want it to die, you want it to flourish. But then if you hire someone, it's obviously not their baby, so they don't care as much. It's more of like a babysitter, that makes sense. <laughs> Good analogy. Um, so I think it very much starts with the person you hire in the first place. Um, so we generally optimize for people who are like really passionate and care about the things that we work on in the first mm-hmm. place. And rather than people who are like super skilled X number of years experienced, but like, you know, are not as passionate or devoted when it comes to like the actual problems that we're solving. And we mm-hmm. also generally, generally optimize more for that than actual skill set on the day of hiring obviously it's very important that people are smart uh, and driven and all of that stuff uh but like uh that is more important for us than like you having spent like i don't know the last three years doing mbv for example so in general that leads to a sort of tribe where people actually love working on the problems anyway and then you know as i mentioned before like we tend to operate like under the sort of decentralized command structure. And so people have ownership. Um, they can decide on how they want to go about like executing a specific mission, for example. And so um, there's a lot more buy-in and it's not so much that, you know, I am the grand person and, you know, telling everyone what to do and I have all this wisdom. It's really like everyone is really working together and it, it just happens more naturally that way versus then, when you have some sort of artificial processes and a lot of micromanaging and managers managing managers and that kind Mm. of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You you really want to like make a a team gel kind of like a hackathon, I guess, but like at a scale, it it makes sense like that. I'm sure you do like equity instead of salaries. Yeah. Well, we obviously both people obviously need to get paid. Oh yeah. yeah. uh, (laughs) Absolutely. Equity for sure. 
like incentives need to be aligned, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, for sure. Because you, you can really just work for a company, uh, especially a big one, and just kind of like breeze through it. It doesn't matter how hard you actually work. You could work like your hardest, still get paid the same as if you're working very minimalist. Um, so I think equity is quite good in that sense of the amount of effort you put in correlates the amount of money you get. Well, in yeah. some sense. Yeah. Also, also impact, I think is the important thing. Like in like everyone's work actually has an impact on the overall or organization. Mm. Right. And so like, you know, when you do a certain thing that has a certain output and then moves the needle, so it doesn't feel like, you know, you are just doing a task and, you know, whether it's successful or not, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Like everything everyone does actually matters. And so that's also very different than in terms of motivation. Mm-hmm. And what have been the problems you face while, you know, creating a startup and going on this journey from, you know, starting from scratch until a point where you're a bit more scaled up and have more people on board? What have been like the main problems in each kind of level? Hard to say. Um, I think they're just always problems all the time. And the default is like something is burning in general. Because even if everything is working, because you are small and not at scale, you're not, you need to move quicker. Otherwise, the market moves or the competition moves and all of those things. So in general, you're almost always in crisis mode and, you know, putting out fires. (laughs) So so it's more like, you know, what problem isn't happening than what specific problems are happening. Yeah. So I I wouldn't be able to, yeah, exactly give you like specific examples, but it's just stuff happening all the time. And sometimes like those problems just seem so insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but then they hold up everything, which can be quite frustrating, but you know, it's part of the fun, I guess. Yeah, yeah, like a fundamental issue that's kind of preventing advancement to the next level. Prioritize that. Yeah, interesting. And if you were to do the whole startup thing, you know, you've done it multiple times, but looking back at it all, what would be kind of the mo- the, the advice you would give someone that's trying to you know create something of something in the building? Hmm, hard to say. So on one hand, you know, um, once you've gone through a first or second iteration there are a lot of things that you now know and so i'm no longer Mm -hmm. as naive about Mm -hmm. so like i could go into some of the specifics but then again a lot of the edge is actually uh being naive because if you knew like a lot of the things that were going to happen you might not even attempt it in the first place yeah. Or might not even go down that route, but in the end of the day, because we are so naive and hopeful and uh, yeah, we're yeah. just working through it, then you made it somehow um, because it's never like a clean line. Right? So, yeah, I don't think I have any specific advice. Rather, I, I guess the advice I would have is like the younger you are, definitely take more risk. And the older you get, the harder it will be to take risks. So I think my only advice would be like take more risks. <laughs> And quickly yeah. as possible, fail in as many ways as you can so that you can find a thing that actually works. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the younger you are, the less priority, uh, priorities, I don't know if that's the word, the less kind of things depend on you. Responsibilities, yeah. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> the, the less responsibilities <laughs> you have. <laughs> yeah, the older you get, obviously, you have, well, you might have family, but you have more things yeah. to take care of. Uh, yeah. And I think even not taking a risk is a risk in itself. You know, you're just risking the future and you might regret it. And I think that's where I guess like a bit philosophy, a bit of a philosophy, but I think the only thing you really think of are, you know, regrets and experiences. And then maybe you you regret not taking a chance and having that new experience and just being complacent. Even if it fails, you still learn a lot. Agreed. That's the only time you really learn anyway. So uh, try to get to as many fails as possible quickly. Yeah, yeah. Trial and error. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the experience points. The more failure, the the more you level up, really. And then you get to a point where, you know, you're super experienced because of the failures and then eventually you succeed. Well, hopefully. I guess it's, again, increasing the chances of creating your own luck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also, just your threshold for, like, 
living in like shitty conditions, you know, sleeping like, I don't know, on your friend's couch or in your car or something like mm-hmm. you can do that. Like, you know, when you are 20 or something, right. Oh, yeah. But um, Like you will less, you'll be less likely to do that when you're in your thirties and you've already had a job that paid you like a hundred K or whatever a month and then go back to living that way. So you can just be like a lot more scrappy and hustle a lot more, which yeah, is yeah, awful. for sure. And your body yeah. can tolerate a lot more as well. Exactly. <laughs> Ramen noodles all the way. Exactly. No sleep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. But it's definitely important to take care of your body young and well, as, you know, as early as possible and have like the right habits so you can kind of like set, up, set yourself up for success for longer, be in like the most optimal state for as long as possible. Um, what does your kind of like daily routine look like? Speaking of that. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I tend to wake up relatively early, um, actually a little bit later these days. I, so I usually get up at five these days, usually at six, do like a quick workout routine. So currently that is just uh, doing like 100 burpees. Then Painful. I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. My cardio was just uh, terrible for a long time. Uh, I've mm. been doing mostly weight lifting, but no cardio. So yeah, uh, I've been doing that lately. Um, so just to get your heart pumping quickly, then I do usually 10 minutes of uh, language learning. So either Duolingo or uh, some other apps, uh, whatever your favorite apps is. Then I usually go for a 20 minute walk. Um, just uh, think about things, let the mind wander, come back and then plan out uh, my day. So doing my to-do list. So I have to-do lists and where I aggregate everything like an inbox and then Like in the mornings, I usually take 15 minutes to uh, prioritize uh, based on what has happened in the previous day. And then it's go time, essentially. Usually do then workouts around noon. Uh, So I uh, do some weightlifting on Mondays and Fridays, Tuesdays and Thursdays. I do Muay Thai. Yeah, and Wednesdays is sort of my, uh, my break day. Yeah, and then... Usually try, so I used to work really, really long hours um, to like 16 hours plus. Uh, But these days I try to get a bit more sleep. Uh, So Mm. I try to have everything wrapped up um, latest by 9 p.m. Around 9.30, I start dimming the lights, doing sort of my wind down routine, which uh, involves a bit of reading and journaling and stuff. And around 10.30-ish, I tend to go to bed already. Sounds very balanced. And obviously when you you know, prioritizing sleep and, you know, cutting down from the 16 hours. (laughs) Yeah, it it becomes much more focused on, well, yeah, focus. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Recently, I was introduced to the concept of time compression. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's basically, you know, if you take, if you schedule two hours to do something, you'll take two hours. But if you schedule one hour to do it, you might be able to actually do it within an hour. So mm-hmm. your day becomes a little bit more intense um, and uh, you try to basically maximize your time and the efficiency. Yep. Um, but that way you actually have some more time later in the day as well to sleep, which is obviously quite important. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, to keep that brain healthy. Um, and yeah, focus is such an important thing because you can get so much done in four hours of intense you know, flow state versus, you know, a whole day of not really focusing, always picking up the phone or getting distracted every 20 minutes. So how do you get into that flow state as fast as possible and stay in it for as long as possible? Yeah, so um, it really depends on um, the specifics, like the task at hand. So for example, uh, when I used to do more coding, like it usually takes me about at least 30 minutes to an hour to get all the pieces in memory or in RAM, so to speak, so that I can actually execute. And right. so like, and so you really want to avoid any distractions. So like, no, like Telegram, no Discord, mm-hmm. um, like all the screens sort of only have the things that you need to work with. But these days I do more multitasking and like coordinating, setting up meetings, gotcha. doing research. The only, I guess, research is mostly the the more focused type of job. And then, you know, like just block out like one or two hours for specific things that I'm looking into. Yeah. So less. So, so the periods are, I guess, not as long as they used to be. But like for coding, because there's a 
longer on-ramp periods to yep. get me into that stage I just needed to block out more time. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Uh, I think it's incredibly important to just get r- rid of as many distractions as possible and even temptations. Because, I mean, we're so, we're so wired nowadays to with like these negative habits, of just, you know, picking it up. Uh, even if it's in our peripheral, we have to kind of like zone out of that stuff and, yep. and remove these bad habits. Um, yep. But yeah, man, this has been great. Uh, I found tremendous value in this and I'm sure a lot of people also going to find a lot of value in this um for the people that want to you know use titan builder how, how can they really get in contact or you know just use it just from listening from this sure uh so we have a twitter we have a website uh, we have a discord so if you just go to titanbuilder.xyz like you'll find all the links to all our accounts and um like we are quite responsive can DM us and um, in terms of like actually connecting to our builder, um, we have docs pages and uh, all pretty straightforward. So just go to titanbuilder.xyz and everything will be there. It's been such a pleasure to have you on, Kubi. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. I know it's super busy and very structured. So uh... <laughs> <laughs> I make time for you. <laughs> you oh, know it. <laughs> Don't make me blush. <laughs> Yeah. yeah it's been fun thanks for having me thanks for coming on yeah and if anybody wants someone else on just message me at scraping bits on twitter or email me at scraping bits at gmail.com and hopefully we can have them on otherwise thank you for coming on and hopefully listen to another one cheers ciao ciao